Chapter Eighteen of Order Number Eleven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Keenan. Order Number Eleven by Caroline Abbott Stanley. Chapter Eighteen: A Memorable Campaign. The shooting of Jim Baird made a great stir in the neighborhood. Dr. Lay's almost forgotten story of the case he had seen at Lawrence was suddenly remembered, and was repeated with great shaking of heads and numerous blood-curdling additions. Before the barbecue crowd had dispersed, the story had gained currency, and people rode home in excited groups, telling it over and prophesying that the scene of the strange assassin's operations would be shifted now from Kansas to Missouri. The body was taken home that night to the old Baskin place, Dr. Lay going on ahead to break the news to the brother, who was not at the barbecue. It is impossible to describe the condition into which that news threw Emmons Baird. Dr. Lay said at Keswick, where he stopped on his way home, that he should always think more of the man because of his affection for his brother. "'Do you think it was affection for his brother or fear for himself?' asked Colonel Trevilian thinking of the look he had once seen on Emmons Baird's face. "'Well, I hadn't thought of that,' the doctor said. He thought of it the next day. It had been arranged between himself and Emmons Baird that the funeral should take place the following afternoon, Dr. Lay offering to secure the services of Mr. Singleton that the dead man might have Christian burial. But when the neighbors got there the next day, and many there were that came, the number being constantly augmented by new arrivals, they were met with startling information. The old house was shut up, and there was a new-made grave out in the orchard. Uncle Bob, the old negro that Emmons Baird had bought when he first came to the neighborhood, told the story to the astounded group. "'Yes, sir, him and me done buried him last night. You hadn't much more'n got out of sight, doctor, for he set me to dig in the grave.' "'Where is Emmons Baird now?' demanded the doctor. "'De Lord knows, sir, I don't. "'When Cindy went to the house this morning, he was gone. "'No, sir, I don't know nothing to all about it. "'His bed wasn't tumble or nothing. "'He didn't even take his clothes. "'He just took his gun and that black mare hissing and lit out.' "'The story was repeated to fresh installments as they came up, "'and never was there a more surprised funeral assemblage.' nor one that felt more defrauded. The old story of the Kansas assassin was hashed up again as they rode off in groups, talking excitedly. Some there were who believed that Jim Baird had come to life and been spirited off in the night, but Dr. Lay shook his head. The man was certainly dead. There was no doubt about it whatever, and so they went away. Uncle Bob's story was true. The murdered man was in his grave, and Emmons Baird had disappeared as completely as though the earth had opened and swallowed him up. It was a great pity, but it had. The whole thing created a nine days' wonder, twice that for the women. But excitement was rising to such a height now over the coming elections that it was soon overshadowed for the men. The time seemed likely to be at hand when the death of one man would be a small matter. In Missouri, the quadrangular fight of 1860 was virtually a three-cornered one. And yet, 
the specter of the tall man at the fourth corner inspired gravest forebodings. "'If Lincoln is elected, it will split this nation in two, Colonel Trevilian had said to Dr. Lay. It was heard on all sides during that feverish, hard-fought campaign. It was spoken with every shade of feeling, angrily, boastingly, defiantly, with resolute hearts that heard the trumpet call in the distance and were ready, and sorrowfully, pleadingly, by prescient souls that saw behind it all a tide of blood and shrank back. If Lincoln is elected, it will split this nation in two. They did not underestimate the keenness of the wedge. They did not overestimate the blows that would be rained upon it. But they had not calculated the strength of resistance, a factor as potential in war as in physics. It was a summer and fall of restless anxiety to all. It did not seem possible, from the Jackson County point of view, that Lincoln could be elected. But if he should, what then? The most baseless, exaggerated fears were real in those days. Men knew not what was before them, and feared the worst. Everything, in fact, except the thing which came. A deluge of blood for four long years. Nobody expected that. The first enlistments were for three months. Ample time, it was supposed, for putting down the rebellion. They knew as little of the fiber of the men they were to subdue as the British knew of the Boers. The ignorance on the other side was as marked and perhaps more amusing. Any southern man can whip a dozen Yankees, it was the common belief. They felt, no less than the North, that they were fighting for God and home and native land. How could the mercenary Dutch, the Yankee mudsills, stand against the chivalry of the South? They would die in the last ditch, they said vain glorious boast uttered by men that knew not war it was made a scoffing and a byword for four long years its echo after the stillness of a forty years peace has in it something of humor but to an ear attuned to the plaintive minor chord as well as the triumphant major there is more of pathos the world bears witness now that when the end came there were not many ditches left nor men to die in them. And the fair Southland was filled with widows and widowed maids. Men were scanning the sky everywhere in 1860, and nowhere more anxiously than in Missouri. The storm was gathering, the heavens were dark, prudent men had their ears to the ground, and the timid sought cover. It hardly seemed for a while that the boys could go back to college, Things were so unsettled and money so scarce. Virginia and Sally had been obliged to give up all thought of Richmond and Lexington. How that battle raged in the early fall! How men argued and ranted! How the forces gathered themselves for the final onslaught! Would it be Breckinridge? Or Bell and Everett? Or would it be Douglas, after all? November came. It was Lincoln. "'My dear,' said Colonel Trevilian one day, looking up from the paper he had been holding before him for an hour, with his eyes glued to one spot, "'what would you think of my hiring out Liz?' It was late in December, and the Negroes were hired out the first of January. 
Mrs. Trevilian laid down her knitting and looked at him in amazement. She could hardly believe she had heard aright. "'Hire Liz out? What for?' There had never been a Negro hired out from her family since she could remember. Colonel Trevilian shifted his position uneasily. "'Times are very hard, my dear. I have never known money so tight, not even in the hard times of fifty-seven. And the worst of it is that there is no telling where it is going to end. People don't know what is before them, and they won't let their money go. Then, you know, the last two years we have had no crops on account of the drought. Altogether, well, well, I've had an opportunity today to hire Liz out, and I don't know but I'd better do it. Who wants her? Colonel Trevilian stooped to pick up his paper. He answered without looking up. John Renfrew. John Renfrew? Yes. Colonel Trevilian felt her tone to be uncompromising. Do you think she ought to go? The question was incisive. I hardly know. You see, my dear, it is like this. Beverly's expenses make a constant drain upon me for ready money, and, as I said, money is exceedingly hard to get hold of. Mr. Renfrew offers a good price for her, and will pay cash. If you could get along without her— Oh, I could get along without her. That isn't it. It is not just the place I should like for her myself, Colonel Trevilian admitted. But, well, the truth of the matter is that if I don't do it, Beverly will have to come home. I should be very sorry for him to do that, in his last year. Why don't you hire out one of the men? I can't do it. Everything is in such an unsettled state that nobody wants help that he can do without. Mrs. Trevilian knit three full rounds before she spoke. When she was at the middle of the needle, she folded the sock together and looked at her husband. Mr. Trevilian, Liz belongs to me. She is not going to Mr. John Renfrew's. She spoke very quietly. In the whole course of her married life, it was the first time that the question of mine and thine had come up. As in the case of most Missouri women, her property, which was large, had been taken into the common fund and was known thenceforward as his. They had always lived in such abundance that this had never created a ripple between them. They hardly knew that there was any other way to do. Supreme in her own domain, she had never in her life before interfered in his. Mr. John Renfrew's is not a safe place for Liz. Her mother served us faithfully. I will not see her child harmed while I live. Then Beverly will have to come home. Very well. He may come home. He will never be educated at Liz's expense. The Trevilians were gentlefolk. They never quarreled. The swift fingers had knit twice three rounds before the colonel spoke. "'I think perhaps you are right, my dear, as you usually are.' He sighed inaudibly. He wanted very much for Beverly to graduate from the University of Virginia. That night, when they were in their own room, his wife said, "'I don't know, but it is better, anyway.' There was no need of her saying, or his asking, what. 
If old Virginia should go, he'd be sure to go with her if he was there. Old Virginia will go, he answered. You can depend on that. End of chapter 18 Recording by Brian Keenan